All right. So you got to bear with me like two seconds. I'm I'm informing everybody that I'm live and I've got to do it the old fashioned way because uh, Twitter got rid of their API, which means I can't automate this function anymore. So you got to bear with me. How are you guys doing? You guys all right? There we go. Boom, bang, we're done. Awesome. So I believe now every human I can think of has been informed in some form of media, which is really nice. This should be a good one. I'm just following through and making sure I got everybody everywhere. And it looks like I do. So we're going to minimize this window and pull it up over there and minimize this window and pull it up over there. I know it's super fascinating, you guys. But here we are all the same. Boom and close this. And yes, so tonight we have world building. Tonight is um, what I would consider an old-fashioned workshop, the kind we used to do on Monday nights. So if you're totally new to this and you have no idea what I'm talking about, what do you mean by old-fashioned? Um, I always imagine doing a workshop in the round, meaning I'm standing there and everybody's sort of arrayed in a circle around me, uh, mainly because I'm a giant attention whore and I like everybody looking at me. And I, I think I, I work better when I can walk in around in a circle and, and answer questions and do all that stuff. So from a virtual perspective, rather than me sort of like flat out uh, staring like front of a room kind of a vibe, picture a circle it's it's more congenial it's more relaxed than that and um yeah this should be really good i'm looking forward to it this is expanding on material that we had last week we had mentioned some rules when we were talking about like fantasy construction and we were talking about just odds and ends and story and world building came up a, a bit now we're going to take that and totally expand it so this should be good um, I'm really hopeful. I'm really uh, excited. And here we go. Uh, where's that sweet workshop music? And here we are now, ready to go. So tonight, world building, and we're just going to get into it. World building, I think, is of all three parts in the story triangle between character, plot, and world building. World building, I think, gets the least amount of attention. The It's the most overlooked, and it is most frequently disregarded. I think that's because most people consider world building to be sort of straightforward, just description, that it's just, here's the trees, and here's the sand, and here's the ground, and here's the castle, and this is what the room looks like. And while that is part of it, and to be, to be fair, an important part, uh, it is by no means the only part, and it should not be the only part. 
And tonight I want to go past because all those things, all that descriptive stuff is incredibly variable, but also equally superficial because we can just as easily change a few words and suddenly turn a, you know, large master bedroom into a cramped studio bedroom. We can turn a a dingy hotel into a, a huge mansion or palace. It's so variable that it's practically unimportant for our purposes as to the specifics of what the world building can be or could be. The particulars, everybody gets hung up on. I'm going to ask us not to because we want to get under the surface to look at the stuff that sits under the architecture that supports and gives us a chance to get superficial about the the nature of the room or the color on the walls or how many stupid trees are in the forest. In order to get to that stuff, we've got to dig deep. And my first point, our first place to go is to consider the world as a concept, to be conceptual in our understanding. And when I talk about this, most people identify a genre. And they say, okay, well, I'm writing a, a, a cyberpunk story. I'm writing a horror story. I'm writing a romance. What does the world have to be in order to be that genre? And that is not bad, but it's incomplete. And it doesn't really work because there's no standard model for anything. You can tell a cyberpunk story without trench coats and rain and leather or latex or anything like that. It doesn't have to look like the matrix. You can tell a romance without it being, you know, period history or without it being sort of this hyper schmaltzy heteronormative rom-com. You can tell a, a, a high fantasy story without it being, you know, monarchistic and medieval Genre is a container, but by no means is it a, is a is it a template. Let's call it that way. So my first challenge, my first plan here, is to move from just thinking instead of genre to think of the world as a word or a phrase. But uh, ideally, we want to do this in the fewest number of words we can because we're going to zoom out. We want to take the biggest picture of the world. And consider not our, you know, deific position as the creator of the world. That's that's nice. But if we were a character in the world, if we were the main character, because primarily that's who the reader is going to follow, we, the main character of our world, have an experience. We believe the world to be a certain way. We exist in this world. We have experience in this world. We're not like, you know, super new to things. We didn't just fall off the turnip truck as the phrase goes. So we have a set of experiences and feelings and stuff that tell us how we see the world. What is that? How do we get there? What would your main, what would your main character do or say when it comes to how they summarize their world? And then Once we get there, then move to any other character, whether they're a major character, a secondary character, the love interest, the king, the the clown prince, the tertiary character, the kid pouring coffee, the the homeless people disregarded by the, the romantic couple on a date. Find a number of people from different experiences. And would they summarize the world, the nature of the world, how the world is? Would they summarize it in the same way? It's okay if they do. It's not typical, but it is okay if they do. But more than likely, it is 
going to be different. And it is up to you to find a synthesis, a way of combining these things so that you can have a world that encompasses how the protagonist feels, but also the, the downtrodden second person and the super downtrodden third person or the incredibly noble, better than the protagonist antagonist. You've got to find a way to encapsulate all these different views within the world, even when those views seem contradictory, and be able to contain that, be able to hold it. Because worlds, whether it's Earth here or made-up magic planet number five on the page, they do contain contradiction. They are not homogenous. They are not fair. They are not uniform. They are not you know, perfectly Thanos balanced. They have messy bits and and gaps and problems and issues. And we're going to get into all of those things at some point, but we are going to start with the idea that you must position yourself, your thinking when you are crafting your story. You got to think like the character for this, because in order to make that world feel lived in for the reader, who's never been to this world and knows nothing of these experiences, The reader is going to look at this world you've made, and while it might be very tempting but shallow to dazzle them with descriptions of mountains and caves and lore and trees and backstory about this field and this building, and you're just, you know, whipping your genitals out and just doing your best to just kind of spray creative goo all over the place, it it doesn't have to be that way. Because the reader's not looking to be impressed by you. The reader is looking to feel as though they could walk out the door and appear in this world. They want to know how to contextualize what you're describing. So the best way to do that is not to lay on heavy slather with all different kinds of description. The way to do that is to find a word or a phrase. And understand that when we have this word or we have this phrase, it is doing two very distinct things at the same time. It is saying what the world is, but also saying what the world isn't. And that's considerable. For instance, let's suppose we describe a world as a place that is unbearably hot and unbearably boring. That's our phrase. That's how we describe our world. Okay, When we think about that, it might be tempting to say unbearably hot. It's got to be a desert. But couldn't it also just be like a sun-scorched rock face? Couldn't it just be, you know, a hot city? Why did you go to desert right away? And when we talk about unbearably boring, does that mean there's nobody around? Or does that mean that the character who believes it to be boring and is going to express through the story that they think it's boring, that there's just nothing of interest, although it is busy? When we establish that word or that phrase, we are saying what is. It's hot and it's boring, but we're also talking about what it isn't. If I describe a place as hot and boring, I am certainly not describing, you know, a very temperate, fun, hip place because I didn't use any of those words, which means you, the reader, or they, the reader, shouldn't have to sit there and sort of, you know, sort of generate that context. What you, how you encapsulate this tells us what is and what isn't. This is called topic priority or prioritization of topic. It's a way of understanding the root essence of the world. And then we're going to take this essence and we're going to use it as a filter to pass through and strain and organize and sift and sort and whatever whatever other word you want to use, 
all the other material. Everything's coming through this screen. The world as a word. It Even if you've never done this before, it's going to immediately make a difference because it's going to do away with and dispense all that fluff about like, oh, it's, a, it's the fourth planet around this star and the blah, 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 blah. And, the, you know, the castle's name is this and the horses are there. It's, it's going to do away with all that stuff because at the heart of it, those things are so last minute impulse decision kind of stuff. It's the candy bar at the checkout line, but everybody seems to obsess over it as if that's like the reason we go to the grocery store in the first place. Think about your world as a word. And from there, we will dive in. We will see if we can organize our words, organize our phrases, because the world has a premise. The world has a set of constructions, some pillars that are holding it up. And we are going to think about these pillars. I'm going to sneeze. Hang on one second. Okay. We are going to think about these pillars. Thanks for letting me sneeze. We're going to think about these pillars as questions. So again, we're coming back to being that character. Is the world fair to us, the character? Is the world balanced? Is it divided? Is there more? Th- are there more things known or unknown to this character? And then, by extension, we're going to do it for additional characters as well and take the aggregate, the pool of that information. So if, for our protagonist, we might say the world is fair but hard. But if we go look at three other people in the story, the the best friend who's, you know, never doing right, the antagonist and maybe some random like levity, haha, funny, funny character, they might say the world's totally unfair. So the world contains that contradiction and creates that tension. Is the world fair? Is it divided? Is there more unknown than known? Meaning there's still stuff to discover, whether that's science or magic or history or mystery or whatever. You've got to find the questions you want to tell. This is not me dictating to you and going, there are 15 questions because there's way more than 15. This is about you saying to yourself, what kind of questions do I want in this story? What kind of questions do I want to try and answer through my plot, through my arcs, through my themes, through my writing? I want to talk about the world being unfair. So I'm going to take the question of is the world fair head on. I want to talk about a theme like found family. So I'm going to put out the world question for that would be something to the effect of uh, does the world bring us more inclusivity or exclusivity? Is the world full of emotional and impractical orphans? Find the questions to which your themes are an answer and your world building will continue to regularly feel like it matters. Your theme, and by extension your character arc, because you're going to so often tie your theme to a character arc so you have some way of doing it, that theme and that character arc are going to give the world building purpose beyond just existence. We want to get away from just existing. Think of questions. How many? Oh, many as you want. Two, five, ten, thirty. More is not better. So if you're if you're listening to this and you're like, oh well, I gotta have a lot. You don't. You could have two. You could have one. Doesn't 
it's not a it's not a sign of I must be a bad writer if I don't have a lot of them. Quantity is not the problem. It's a quality issue. If you ask weak ugh questions, well, then you're not really going to get very deep world building because the question you're writing, or depending on how you've written it or what it is, isn't going to hold a lot of weight. A, a bad example. We'll do a bad example of a question now. A bad question would be, is the world collapsing? Now, I know I have a question on the slide about is the world developing, thriving, or collapsing? And it depends on whether or not you're asking each of those three things as options or whether we're just focusing on one. Because if we just go, is the world collapsing? And you answer no. Any question you can answer no but not have a follow-up to is a weak question that's not necessarily going to give you a lot of depth. So is the world fair? No. Oh, okay. Okay. If your next thing, your next follow-up isn't why or how, if you can't extrapolate from that, you're not digging deep enough into how you see the world of your story. Now, you might look at this and think this is absolutely ridiculous because maybe you're just writing a romance novel and no one gives a shit about world building in a romance novel beyond just like, here's their bedrooms. This is where they're going to fuck. Here are the places they're going to go on a date. Here's the part where they meet up in the rain. Here's this and here. Like, I, I get it. It can seem very unimportant because of what normally happens. But if we are going to elevate your writing, if we are going to push and challenge you to dig in and make these worlds more realized, the story more enjoyable, the characters more engaging, then we have to not just talk about this is how you make a sentence that describes a room and instead focus on this idea and concept of what's underneath those descriptions. Your world has a premise. It has questions. It has material that you, the writer, can unearth that's going to influence how the characters act and operate in the story. For instance, if you're writing that romance novel and we have a, a, a small town girl living in a lonely world who takes the midnight train going anywhere, at the beginning of the story, she might say, yeah, the world is totally fair. My life sucks, but I'm on this train. I'm headed to the big city. But as she stays in the city and develops things and runs into hardship and ultimately finds love and falls a little bit out of love, she might turn around and go, no, the world's not fair because we're on part of an arc. And then if we continue this trajectory and she realizes that, oh, man, that city boy really loves me. Well, then she's going to go, the world's not only fair, but the world's great because we have an arc. We went from it is fair to it's not fair to it's fair again. This is how we tie world building into something like theme or character arc. World building doesn't just sit idle and alone. That's sort of like unchosen item at a buffet. It's interwoven into all these other steps. World building allows plot to happen. It's not going to make any sense for you to say that the plot is they have to go find the, the magic volcano to throw the jewelry into if you don't allow for a region to be volcanic. Otherwise, it's just going to be real fucking weird that there's a volcano just like two miles down the street. You've got to think in questions. So what are your questions? Chew on that. Spin it around. See what you get. Dig deep. Remember, you don't want yes and no. You want how and why and be able to answer it. 
Is the world fair? No. Why? Because income inequality, because racism, because sexism, because people are xenophobic, transphobic, biphobic, whatever. Find the whys. Now, maybe they won't come their way. Maybe, you know, it won't come up in story. Maybe your fantasy novel where <clears throat> there's inherent racism and speciesism isn't, you know, really the place where you want to, you know, do the right thing and say, you know, get on a soapbox and say something. But it can still influence how you write, even though you never, like, tackle it. But do think in questions. On we go. Which brings us, this is a slide from the other night, which brings us to the sort of the foundational setup for world building. This is where the building happens. And we're going to walk through the sets. Now, I have some sets on the slide. I'm going to do more verbally because there are more verbally because this is really the meat of everything. Every world operates with rules. Rules of all different kinds. Don't confuse rules for laws, like societal laws. That is part of it, but they're not the same thing, and we don't only stop there. Every world has rules, and a lot of the time, those rules are going to get hand-waved away to, like Earth, and that's fine. That's totally okay. It doesn't matter that you do or don't have you know, too few things that are like Earth and everything else is this wild new invention. It's not the point. What I'm saying is that if it's like Earth is your answer, great. But we're going to start at the broad level of global rules where we're going to set up how the planet, how the space, how the continent, how the land, how the air, sky, water, place operates. And that's stuff like physics and atmosphere, and weather, and time of day, and maybe calendar, if you want to go that far. You don't have to, but you can. But how does the world work? What Does it, does it rotate? How does it rotate? Is there a moon? Is it cold and hot? Do they have different seasons? Is it always the same? Is it a different little biome like Minecraft? Is everything underwater? Do we live in a planet where everybody has to wear a mask because the atmosphere is ammonia? What's the global set of rules? And we're going to write these out. The, the atmosphere is, the, you know, the land masses are. There are this many continents. There are volcanoes to the south. There are, you know, jungles to the north. There's a town of Mountport. There are a, a mountain town right next to the sea, just because we're playing SimCity, I guess. The global rules are going to be that part of the story development that give you details as to how the big stuff operates. Mountains, glaciers, rock, water, sky, clouds, etc., etc. And if you want to hand wave most, if not all of this to Earth, it's fine. Go ahead. This also includes things like physics and gravity. You know, you don't have to get into like studying quantum mechanics or superposition or anything like that uh, in order to understand this stuff, that's okay. You don't need to. It's sort of like Star Trek in that way. It just is. Yeah, we have a we have a glowy light blinky thing, and that's how we get gravity on a spaceship. Okay, cool. It's fine. It's not about how specific you can be. This is not a case where we are trying to get you to be more 
masturbatory or creative in order to show off a complicated solution to a simple problem. Because ultimately, at the end of the day, most of the time, you don't really want your reader stopping and thinking about the global rules. You don't want them thinking, hey, what atmosphere are they breathing in Lord of the Rings? Or, you know, how come there are no mer people in, I don't know, Neuromancer? I'm pretty sure there's no mer people in Neuromancer. It's been a long time since I read that book. But you don't want the reader getting lost in the mix by you trying to bring up things or solve problems that no one's having. So while this stuff globally at a global world building level is fine, don't go overboard. Is that clear? Does that make sense? Don't go over. It's there for you to set up the other questions. Because once we set up the global specifics, we can move into the environmental specifics. And the environmental specifics are more, rather than topographic or, or cartographic and, and glacial, we're going to talk biome. This city's over here. This jungle's here. It's temperate. It rains. That's the polar ice cap, whatever, whatever, whatever. You're setting up the environment. Why does the environment matter? Because the environment is going to pose some amount of challenge to our story. Now, in cases like a big giant quest story in a fantasy novel, that stretch where it's rainy and everything sucks, it's pretty straightforward. But if you're writing, again, that pretty straightforward romance novel, why should we care about environmental rules? Because maybe we need to get them, the two characters who are in love, maybe we need to get them rainy and cold and trapped in a motel when the power goes out in order for them to have their first kiss. So we better have some environmental rules that allow for it to rain. Now let's just be clear. No one's going to see these. This design document, this setup we're creating is not for public consumption. You don't have to run it past your reader. You don't have to send it to an agent or a pimp. You don't have to give it to an editor. You don't even really have to give it to me as a coach if you're my client. I mean, you can if you want. I don't, I'm don't. i not going to stop you. But this document and these rules form an instruction manual for how you're going to build your world. They're for you. So you don't need to write 1,500 words about fucking clouds. You can just say, yeah, it's going to rain. It rains sometimes. The city is dark and full of thieves. Environmental. What are the biomes? What are the situational environments? This city is full of people no one trusts. That's the city of the dead where literally the dead reanimate. This is, you know, the place in the mountains. This is where all the talking animals live. This is the, the small town where the girl left when she got on the midnight train to anywhere. Environmental rules. We then step down to societal rules. And I'm going to split this up into a few groups. So societal rules overall operate in clusters. What are the societal rules for class? What are the societal rules for job? What are the societal rules for gender, if that's a way your story identifies? What is your societal rule for species? What is your societal rule for tasks? You know, the biggest, most common unifying groups 
operate as themselves a society. If you're doing, um, let's do a really like straightforward one. Let's say you're doing like a comic book kind of thing and you've got the X-Men. All the X-Men collectively together are a society. They might not be in story identified as the society of the mutant or whatever, but within themselves, they've formed a group that can be recognized with an internal structure like a society. There are hierarchies, there are power dynamics, there are common grounds, there are resentments, there's all different kinds of stuff. So think first societally, big groups. And big group is going to be termed by a specific single factor. This is the big group for class. This is the big group for species. This is the big group for robot people, whatever. I want to split this, though, because societies aren't only big groups. They are groups of any size with common experience. So this is societal experiential rules. So when you are a member of this group, whether that's one person, five people, six people at lunch, 25 people in an office, a community of, of unknown number of people in the population, they have a collective experience because of some factor about them. We identify as fill in the blank. So therefore our experience is fill in the blank. Set those up. Why does that matter? Because even if your story isn't about a member of that community stepping forward and doing something, how that community is treated influences how other people act. So if, for instance, you have a society that looks down on carpenters, I don't know why, they, they just do. So, but if you have a society that looks down on carpenters, then carpenters, as, a, as an experiential group, will consider the world to be a harder, difficult place full of meaner people. So when they have to interact with the world, they will interact with it differently than, say, a more favored group like... I don't know. Holy assassins. I'm shrugging here because I couldn't think of anything off the top of my head. But the point and the idea here is that if you can think about the grouping of your character, even if your character is an individual, they're a group of one. They are a member of a society where they themselves are the sum population. Because let's go back to our romance example. Your experiential, your societal experiential uh, grouping is I'm a character who's looking for love. That's a group. How are they treated by the world? That's going to inform how love is thought of. Do people talk them out of it? Do older people tell them they just got to keep waiting and be patient? Do younger people feel that, you know, love is a monogamous structure designed to crush souls and eliminate options because they believe that heteronormativity and heteropatriarchy should dominate things? Or are we just free to love how we want, who we want, when we want, whatever ways we want, as many people as we want? The society of one is just as valid as the society of many. And setting up these rules gives you a better understanding of when you consider the group in society that is your protagonist or your group of protagonists, how do they collectively see the world, even if they themselves are also different members of different groups? If you want a food metaphor, we have this whole bunch of grapes made up of individual grapes that I 
glued together from other bunches. But now they're in one bunch, but they're different individual grapes from different vines. That's what I'm talking about. Once we get into societal and once we go through societal experiential, we continue to zoom down because in between societal and personal, there's, a, there's an intermediary step and that's called power. I should have put this on the slide. I realized this right after I said it in the other workshop. Uh, I completely overlooked this, so I want to address it now in more depth. Power generates its own set of rules because depending on who has it and how much of it they have and in what contexts they have it versus what contexts they don't is going to inform a lot of the story. For instance, uh, a person in uh, an incredibly powerful political position has power limited to the political spectrum. You know, maybe they're a senator of some kind, right? That being a senator might afford them some tangential perks just because they can say, well, you know, I'm a senator, so give me a free sandwich. But you can't take that senatorial power and suddenly make them, you know, hyper-competent at some other thing. Like, I'm a senator, so I must therefore be an amazing fighter pilot. There's no reason to think those two things are associated. And one of the most frequent ways I tell people to consider power dynamics is to think about Bones from OG Star Trek. Because Bones would often say something like, Damn it, Jim, I'm a doctor, not a bricklayer. A character considers their power based on where that power is the strongest. So the world-building rule is when people have power, from where or from what does that power come from? And what are the limits to that power? Where are the boundaries? Because you run into a situation, if, if we're just going to walk all the way through this, you run into a situation like Star Wars, where clearly the character with the greatest amount of force powers, the guy who can do the most, essentially, space magic, should be the guy in charge because there are fewer and fewer people who can directly oppose him or yeet him into a space hole. Where does that power emanate? And when you suddenly let one set of powers, space magic, let you become a second group of powers, the emperor of the, you know, empire, that sounds terrible now that I say that out loud, but you know what I mean. The... The point is, once your power overlaps, your character becomes slightly less deep. Emperor Palpatine, Sheev, is not as deep as we think. And one of the reasons why we all roll our eyes later on in the, in the saga when somehow Palpatine returned. Uh, it's because we keep stripping depth away from the Emperor. How does power radiate outward? How does power or the lack of power influence how a character behaves or how a character can, beha can behave or what a character can or can't do? How does power respond to challenge? Are there fewer things? You know, we have, so for us, right, in our earthly world, power in many regards comes from money. We give money an undue status, right? 
So if you have money, you receive different treatment in a number of different ways. You get access to more material. You get access to better quality material. You perhaps get to skirt a few laws. You get a little bit more leniency in social situations. Money is tremendously potent as a tool for world building in our, in our world. So if we were shaping a story, if we were setting up, you know, kind of how we want the world to be, we would consider something like money to be a tool for world building on a power level. Maybe it's magic. Maybe it's whoever pulls the sword from the stone. Maybe it's just, you know, the power really isn't so much this overt thing that gets expressed. It's not coming from a MacGuffin. Maybe power is knowledge. Maybe you're writing a detective story and the power comes from being able to solve the crime before anybody else does. Or you're writing a criminal story and the power is getting away with it before anybody catches you. Power is a tremendous source of rules. Do not dismiss power. Do not underthink power. And from there, we get into personal rules. Now, we're going to break personal rules into two types. One is sort of a, let's call it existential. How does a person just get through their day in the world? Do they have to have a job? Do they have to have shelter? Can they just be, you know, nomadic? Can they be poor? Can they, you know, I mean, yes, on one level, yes, you can be poor, but is it to their advantage? Does it help them subsist? Does it add challenge if they do? What is a person's existence day to day like? What are the rules to operate at that level? And once we get done existential personal rules, we can move to experiential personal rules, which is what kind of things is this person going to go through? You know, so, okay. The existential stuff says we have to have a job and we need housing and we need food and clothing. So if we meet all those needs pretty quickly in our world building, pretty quickly in our character development, we can move right then to experiential. Okay, so we gave them an apartment, we gave them some debt, we gave them a hoodie, we've sent them out into the world. Okay, what are they going to do now? So now experience is going to be occupation. Okay, we're going to make them uh, a data entry assistant or whatever they call admin people now, secretaries. Okay, so if that's the case, where does that put them? What, what does that open up for our story? What does that make possible because of the experiential rule we give them? Don't confuse experiential with existential. Existential just allows the character to be anything. Experiential narrows down what the character can be or do. We want to make that distinction because you want to be thinking about the character as more than just the doer of a set of actions. The character doesn't only exist to do the plot. I'm here to fall in love. I'm here to fight the dragon. I'm Batman or whatever, right? Like too many times, too many people get real caught up in this idea that your character's first priority is to do the plot, which is... Well, it's, I don't know how to put this nicely. It's wrong. It's just wrong. That's not how this works. The plot gets done because of who the character is. And the reason the plot can be done at all because of who the character is, is because the world allows it to happen. 
Frodo can't take the ring to Mordor if the world doesn't allow Mordor and the ring and Frodo to exist and be able to take ring from point A to point B. These levels of world rules are the bread and butter, the big deal of world building. You can spot, at once you get good at this, you can totally spot a writer whose draft has rules that are sorted out, even a few rules versus, you know, a story where the rules are just kind of like, eh, it's Earth, don't think too hard about it. Tenant School of Filmmaking for my Patreon people. You want depth. You want to spend some time thinking about this. Even if you're writing like a romance novel in, you know, Chicago from over the summer, like give this some thought because it's going to facilitate lots of other stuff, going to give you lots of other material to think of and work on. Because what rules suggest, what rules can give us, it can tell us that the world works a certain way. And when those things get challenged, we end up with tension. World tension is a really interesting idea that I'm going to take a minute and kind of brag for a second. I don't see any other writing coach really developing this idea. Maybe they do and they don't talk about it. I don't know. I don't think I'm the first human to ever come up with this because uh, Chevalier came up with this like in the 40s. But um, tension as a divining rod and system of understanding story is pretty common. It goes like way back to the Greeks. But we want to think about tension in terms of how different things, whether those things are groups, whether those things are rules, whether those things are experiences, whether those things are whatever, how those groups butt up against each other. Is it, you know, frictionless? Because nothing is, should be frictionless. There should always, and I'm not saying like everybody is two seconds away from like a, like a brawl in the streets or like a West Side Story knife fight. I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying that there's always some kind of tension. Whether that's singular tension, like you have a thing I want, one person v. one person. Whether it's societal tension, this marginalized group wants its voice heard. Whether it's, you know, community tension. Some group of people want to act or behave a certain way, and it's up to the other people in the group to sort of either let that happen or not let it happen. Or whether it's a, a global thing or an environmental thing. Oh my God, we're destroying the planet. Krypton is going to explode. What are we going to do? Look for those sources of tension because they aren't limited to just your big giant plot. Yes, tension is great for plot. Love tension. Big fan of tension. Helps make loads of shit happen. But this isn't only where you stick the plot in. Tension exists at all different levels, and we're going to talk about it. Hello, Troy. Thanks for coming in. It's really great seeing you. I am doing well tonight. Thank you for asking. Tension. We're going to talk about it at a couple different levels. World-building tension. When there's tension between the elements of the world, whether those are rules of some kind, way, shape, or form, give the reader an impression that there's depth to the world. They give the characters a sense that the world is not uniform and is in some way imperfect. Now, I don't know if the plot of the story makes that matter, but it does exist that way. 
when that tension exists in a plot, it makes a plot not suck. I don't know how else to express that to you. It's it's significant. It's good. It's nice. And it's chewy. We want that sense of tension present in our plot. When world building tension meets plot, we've created a set of obstacles without making the plot more complicated. Because the plot might be, we got to walk from here to Mordor and back. But the world building makes that more difficult because have you seen Mordor? It's got volcanoes and shit in it. Like, you know, the world building might be, or the plot might be, I've got to find love in this giant city, but the world building has this city full of assholes. When world tension meets plot, you get a lot of fertile ground for story. And when world tension meets character, you get a very interesting situation, potentially, where your character has the ability to do something about a world rule, like, oh my God, I'm going to go blow up the Death Star in my space biplane and then change and then fade the whole galaxy. And uh, admittedly, yes, a lot of writers do end up doing that to the point where that's sort of the easy way out. It's always easy to write a story where one character's small action has a huge consequence. That's just a pretty straightforward story structure. But when world tension prevents a character from advancing in a way they want so they have to do something else, that's how you get, you know, Breaking Bad or Better Call Saul or The Wire or insert other television show that isn't Game of Thrones that you think is good. World tension smacking into character gives character opportunity. We like opportunity. Tension is sort of the, the not yet exploded dynamite. Tension is the weight. It's the anticipation. It's the, the chafing and the struggle before things really erupt. And we want to think about it that way because the next thing to consider is conflict realized. So here's, here's the thing. You can consider tension to be unrealized conflict it's conflict that hasn't happened yet so until it happens it's unrealized and it's just tension but when conflict kicks off whatever that conflict is whether it's this kingdom fighting that kingdom or everybody in their 20s figuring out which way to swipe on an app or people in an office vying for promotion or people flying in their space biplanes trying to blow up a, a man-made moon. Realized world conflict has very clear effort. Like, you can see it. It has impact. Stuff happens. And because it has impact and stuff happens, there are going to be, you know, losses incurred, whether those are like, we lost 5,000 men in the war. Or they are more social losses. Oh my God, I can't believe you didn't get an invite to this cool frat party. But there are also costs. Because in order to advance, in order to get into this stuff, characters had to do things. Oh, I had to embarrass myself online. I hope no one gets that video of me being weird and inappropriate, only to find out that in the plot that video gets leaked online. There are always costs and losses when it comes to conflict. And that is equally true 
on a world stage when we're dealing with the rules or societal rules or laws or experiential rules of the world. So if you're telling uh, a new adult freshman in college story, you're going to deal with costs and losses that are probably pretty you know, social, communal, experiential, as opposed to existential. You know, losing the favor of your friends, getting ostracized from your group, not making the frat you pledge, you know, getting shamed at a party, something like that. Those things don't prohibit you from existence. They're not existential conflicts. They're experiential conflict. All of a sudden, everybody thinks I'm a loser. What do I do? The conflict is I'm encountering this world rule that says there are losers and cool people. And the tension of it is, how do I figure out which one I am? And the realized conflict is, oh, shit, I'm a loser. So when we're considering this, when we're building these setups for our characters, we have to ask ourselves, what's at stake? What do we want? What does this character want? And what are they risking to get it? Because you're not going to get anything without that risk. Otherwise, there's no real challenge to it. You just have to go get it. It's sort of like me picking up this glass of tea. Uh, as long as my hand works and I can reach it, I can lift it. There's no, there's no written. Now, the risk is I'm going to spill it all over the keyboard or something, but that's why I'm holding it like way over here away from everything. And what's at stake is my thirst. But as long as it is possible for me to do it and there's no real difficulty to it, it's not much of a problem. That's my unsubtle way of saying, give me two seconds, I'm going to put liquid in my face. What we're talking about here in realized conflict isn't just a matter of making the world very busy. Weaker writing will make the world busy. Oh my God, there's so many wars, there's so many battles. Or they'll put them in the past. A thousand years ago, these two countries went to war and they haven't stopped since. Oh God, I can't tell you the size of the yawn. I just yawned because of that. It's dull. It's so dull because there's no context. Because why should the reader give a shit? How does what happened a thousand years ago, two continents away, matter today? Yes, your story possibly has the you know potential to show me how responsible it could be and how material and urgent that can be. But more often than not, this is just a writer looking to tell you that they thought about a big battle scene. Think about your risks and what's at stake and the losses and the costs and the wins. And most importantly, when we're dealing with conflict, how are the characters impacted? You can't necessarily impact the plot too much because if your world building prevents the plot from happening, your story's going to stall out. So, for instance, if you have world building rules like, um, gosh, let me think about it. Uh, nobody can drive faster than 60 miles an hour. I don't know. It's a dumb, stupid rule. Whatever. It's an example. If you force the story to have a character drive 61 miles an hour, yes, it's neat. And yay, the character is winning. I'm making air quotes. But at the same time, you're blowing your world rule out of the way and it seems really non-threatening. And it raises a question of why didn't anybody try this before? Why is the character the one that does this? It's not very deep. And it could be. It should be. 
So when we're crafting the rule, like um, there's nothing at the center of the earth and then you find out, oh my God, the earth is hollow because there are jungles or whatever. Don't give yourself a contradiction that inhibits plot. Give yourself contradictions, challenges, unknowns, and uncertainties that allows for the plot to happen. It might end up changed. Hey, we didn't know there was going to be a... We didn't know there was going to be a, a, a an ocean here on our map, but now we have to deal with it. Is it the backwards drive from Ready Player One? Yes, kind of. I mean, I'm not really a fan of Ernest Klein, but yeah, you're kind of in the same space there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good thinking. But we like our realized conflict. We like our realized conflict because we love danger. Danger is awesome. We like danger because danger suggests tension. There are dangerous things in your world, whether that's animals, whether that's people, whether that's violations of rules, whether that's loads of different whatever. Maybe it's just the societal danger of, oh my God, they used the wrong spoon at the, at the dinner party. Or I can't believe they said that to the boss at the meeting. Or... Vows of marriage prohibit the characters from really exploring how they feel. There are dangers in your world. They are not necessarily rules because sometimes it's just there's a monster in the jungle or every 27 years a clown comes out of the sewer to torment children until they have some kind of like weird child sex scene. But there are dangers. Find your dangers and use them. You don't have to use all of them. In fact, using all of them is generally a sign that you've either got too many or you just don't know how to stop yourself, which is a critical writer skill. You have to learn when enough is enough. And everybody's going to come to that decision and come to that experience on their own. But chances are throwing more things into a story is not better. Oh my God, I have two dozen problems. Okay, is the character going to deal with all 24 of them? No, then you don't need all 24. And then this is where a writer usually says something like, but, but, uh-huh, great. You don't need all 24. You need, like, way less than that. If you're asking how many, if you're about to question, uh, more than one and less than all of them. For every danger you put into play that you're going to really detail other than say, ah, there be monsters over there. If you're really going to get into it, you're just adding more things. You're putting in more potential action beats because as we walk from here to Mordor, we might encounter giant spiders and wolves and orcs and Tom Bombadil. And we get to pick and choose when we encounter these things and... Thank you so much for following. I really appreciate that. We get to pick and choose when we follow these things. And if you keep throwing shit in there, you are slow in the story way down. There is a reason why all the shit from the book doesn't make it into the movie. More dangers, not better. More danger just means you did a lot of thinking. Pick and choose. And don't let all the potentials, well, I could have this in the story and I could have that in the story. Stop the story in its tracks. We like dangers. Because danger suggests that there are opportunities. Your world rules. 
whatever they might be, allow the potential for things to happen. Now, some of those potential things that happen are conflicts or dangers or risks, but opportunities are also there. If you set up in your fantasy kingdom this idea that every you know, harvest season there's a jousting tournament and the winner gets, I don't know, a small castle or they get a lifetime supply of bread or whatever it is they get. Those opportunities can be plot. They can be character arc. They can be subplot. They can be loads of things. Characters pursue opportunity, and opportunities exist because of the world building. See how I got there? We're tying things back together. Opportunities are made in loads of different ways. There's always going to be a challenge, something they have to try and do that isn't easy because otherwise they would have done it already. There's always going to be something in the way, an obstacle, something that needs to overcome. So they have this opportunity, but there's a problem they have to navigate first. And there's always going to be some amount of skill involved. Yeah, you can totally enter the jousting tournament if you're really good at jousting, but you need to impersonate this knight in order to do it, and we have to hope we don't get caught. Opportunity drives character because of character moral code, because of character philosophy. And then it's cyclical because character philosophy comes out of the, their experiential rule set. The character grows up to be who they are because of how the world around them shapes them or doesn't shape them. See how it spins around? See how we tie the pieces together? Somewhere, somebody is nodding their head, and that makes me very happy. So let's do an example. A young kid believes that the world can be inherently good, simple, and pure. And he lives a good life on a farm, and he loves baseball, loves baseball. And he's got a favorite tree out back. He can see it from his window. And one night, lightning strikes that tree. And it's deeply scary for him because it's his favorite tree. But he takes that wood and he uses it to make a bat to pursue his other great passion, baseball, because his entire life, all he ever wanted to do was be a ball player. So he makes a bat out of the lightning struck tree from his house. And he goes on to play amazing baseball. But after a series of setbacks in his personal life, he begins to doubt. He begins to feel like he's just not that person anymore. And somewhere along the way, his bat breaks. The opportunity to redeem himself, to be who he thought he could be, comes from another young kid who also made his own bat, inspired by the first kid. And it's in that new bat with new hope they see a new opportunity. And then Robert Redford smacks a home run that knocks the lights out of the stadium and we all celebrate. That's the natural. Opportunity develops character. World building suggests opportunity. The opportunity and the attempt of opportunity is often plot. We've just tied all the pieces together. Now, Sometimes you're going to have opportunities in your world that your characters just can't access for any number of reasons. 
And sometimes the story is going to be about the limit of that access or them trying to overcome those limits to access. But it doesn't always have to be that way. Sometimes you're telling a story where there are opportunities that are just existing but immaterial to the characters because it just is. If we are telling, you know, the story of a guy impersonating a knight at a jousting tournament, we are not going to get into the opportunities of going to war because it's not the same thing and that's not the story. If we are telling the story of some uh, humans who get sent to another planet to fight giant bug monsters, they have opportunities to save the human race. We are not necessarily going to go in real deep with the opportunity to have, you know, a variety of interesting meals from different cultures because it's not what the story's about. Opportunities matter. Some are going to be open. Some aren't going to be open. Sometimes the story's about that, but sometimes it's not. The fact that they exist in the story is what matters. What are your world's opportunities start with your main character and work out okay so i've got the main character what are the opportunities the main character gets what are the, and then move to the secondary characters you can pretty much stop after the secondary characters you don't have to get into like what are the opportunities of the tertiary character who only shows up to pour coffee because they're just there to pour coffee so don't they don't have a lot of opportunity tertiary and quaternary characters are just there to perform a role in the story their opportunity is to do what they're supposed to do. That's the guy who bags groceries. That's the lady at the library. They're just here to hand me a book and I smile at them. There's your opportunity done, but more central to the story characters, your main character, they have opportunities. Think about them, find them, track them down. And because there are opportunities, there must be rewards. Rewards are great because rewards give us things. The character's reward is a completion of an arc or a completion of the plot or both. I get to find the Holy Grail. I get to pull the sword from the stone. I get to be uh, a wizard like my father. I get to yeet an old man down a space hole. I get to win the lottery. I get to be in love. Yay, romance. Whatever. Characters have a moral code that lead them to act a certain way. Rewards are made appealing or not appealing based on that moral code. A character who believes in always doing the right thing is not going to take a reward that can only be available to them by doing not the right thing. Rewards motivate action. Oh man, if I do the right thing, I can win this, the, the student council election at my school. I could do the right thing. Reward can incentivize and motivate action. Or it might not. It, the, the absence of uh, wanting it might be significant. You know, we could totally make your problem go away. You just have to murder your spouse. Okay, I don't really want to do that. Well, then that's not really much of a reward. What rewards exist in your world? And then how do those rewards work into the plot or the character arcs, or both. When a reward is, I got to keep the Nazis away from the, the Ark of the Covenant, and the reward is, you know, punching some Nazis and keeping the Ark away, the, char the, the character arc of having faith in the supernatural comes into play, but also it's the plot, because we don't want the Nazis to get the Ark of the Covenant. 
your rewards have to intersect somewhere with the arc of the character or the arc in the plot. Otherwise, it's just kind of sitting there. And that's weird. I don't know any other word for it. It's just weird. Because why are you going to all this trouble of telling everybody that there's this thing that exists and then not do anything with it? And if somebody out there is about to go Chekhov's gun, this is not Chekhov's gun. This is just shitty development because we've invented things and not used them. Chekhov's gun is where we make it more active, where we definitely say, hey, there's a gun. Hey, there's a gun. We've been talking about shooting for a while. You need that discussion. You need to bring the thing up. You can't just go and, you know, there's also whales because that's weird. You need rewards in your world. Even if that reward is, I get to do the plot. Yay. You still get something. All right. That, my friends, is everything. So, I see people are here in chat. Hello. I forgot to, I forgot to greet you guys when you came in. Hello, chat. Hello, YouTube in the future. Who has questions about anything? About any part of this? Who wants some individuated help about their own world building stuff? Fire away. I've got a third of a glass of tea left. By the way, if the guy who left me that really aggressive comment on YouTube comes back and says, I took too long and I rambled, um, this time I really tried not to. Questions, anybody? If not, and it's totally okay if not, but if not, we'll get out of here. Yes? No? You have one. Fire away. Whenever you're ready. You're typing. Keep typing. I'll keep drinking tea. You just keep typing. I will anticipate a question. Yes, if if this one goes well, if this is helpful for people, if this is well received, then yeah, totally. Uh, I will do one for character and I will do one for plot. No problem. Back at the start of the stream, you made mention of people going for obvious in terms of world, like hot is desert. Yes. Is that just to do with tropes and people finding things quick and easy to relate to? Yes, in part. I'm going to throw this up on the screen just for the people watching the video. Um, yes, it does have to do with tropes and ease, but you also, it's, I don't want, I'm, I'm, I'm dancing around the word lazy because I think that is a factor, but it isn't always. Sometimes it's just a lack of foresight. 
it's this idea of, yeah, when I say hot, you think desert. And maybe that's okay because that's what you want. But you've also got to remember as a writer, you can exert far more control, far more specificity, and you can make more decisions. You can go for hot, nothing wrong with hot. But hot in a desert is, while it's not exactly the same kind of heat that we might get in a city on a sweltering, humid day, it's still hot. Don't limit yourself. The reason why I brought it up for hot equal desert, you don't want to tie yourself to the trope and just go, oh, I got the trope, I'm covered. You don't want to stop short trying to lay things out. It's it's not wrong if you do, like you're not ruining everything. You're just making it harder for yourself down the road because eventually, somewhere, you're going to find a reason to expand your story. You're going to get there and go, yeah, I said it was hot, but now I need to add more to it. I need to qualify it. I need to change it. How do I do that? I've already locked them into this description. I've already locked them into this stuff. I'm already kind of going in this direction. If I change too hard and suddenly go, no, 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 it's not a desert, then I got to rewrite a ton of shit. I don't want to do that, so what do I do? You can prevent that whole frustrating exercise by not starting from the point of a trope. Great question. Others? It's a really good question. Is this part of the every high fantasy thing is talking? Kind of. Um, yeah, we, we had talked about that with the fantasy stuff. Yes. Um, what happens is so that there's a thing. There, there's a, a popular author or a popular book or a, a thing that captures zeitgeist or just a, a seminal major player in a field. And then everybody's like, that, shit's, that shit works. I, if I want to work, if I want to do well, I have to make my stuff like that stuff. And, and that's how we run into trouble. That's how every military science fiction person wants to be Heinlein or uh, every major like space opera is going to be Star Wars or Dune or every high medieval fantasy is Game of Thrones or Lord of the Rings or or the Chronicles of Shannara or something. Like, it doesn't have to be. It really doesn't have to be. One thing I would like in this too is that not all role-playing games are Dungeons and Dragons. There are games that are flat out better than Dungeons and Dragons. But Dungeons and Dragons, like so many other large things, suck all the air out of the room. And we want to get away from that. We want to breathe air into the room by doing more than considering what the fast, easy choice is. Your work deserves better. Your readers deserve better. Why should I read the 73rd, you know, stamp mimeograph copy of Lord of the Rings. Oh, instead of hobbits, you have walrus people. Okay. Oh, you got clever. Instead of dragons in Game of Thrones, you have hamsters. Sure. It's the same thing. I've seen this before. Remember, we talked, uh, one of the things coming up, uh, and I know I've talked about it on the podcast, but I should do a workshop on it, is saying something, having something new to say. And this is part of that too. It's often less threatening, less scary, less vulnerable to say things through world building than it is to say things through character or plot. 
Because if you're doing it through character, you're you're talking from a personal perspective. If you're doing it through plot, you're describing an experience. But if we're saying the world just discriminates against this kind of people because it's a world rule, well, then you're able to talk about this discrimination without like putting too much of a fine specific spotlight on yourself. You can you can dance around that identification if you need to. I should probably put a say something workshop on the list. Let me grab my notes. One of the reasons why I like doing it this way is because I think of a thing right off the fucking bat. Say something. Cool. Other questions, issues, etc. Else we'll get out of here. How did we feel about what is now a late night for some people's like workshop? I've been doing these in the middle of the day because uh, it's been convenient for me. How did how did we like? Going back and working at night. Problem for anybody? Does it require excessive caffeine? Um, is it better during the day? Let me know. You don't have to let me know right this second. Um, if you're on YouTube and you're watching this, it doesn't ultimately matter, I guess. But if you're live, let me know. Or if you're listening to this audio, uh, does the energy seem different? Um, is it better when these things come out in the middle of the day than when they come out at night? I'm open and flexible as best I can be. You just got to tell me. Anything else? Else we shall march on out of here. Yeah. Let us go. I don't have, I still don't have, I got to work on this. I still don't have outro music. So we will use the Wednesday night, or the Tuesday chat, whatever, outro. I want to thank everybody for being here. I want to thank everybody for checking this one out. Thanks for letting me roll my sleeves up and get into something. It means the world to me. If you like this, if you want to recommend more things like this, if you want to be a part of the next couple things, uh, the best thing you can do is jump over to patreon.com slash John Hill to write better and check this out and come join the community and be part of all this stuff and get oodles of more stuff and get hyper detailed answers longer than what I've given here for sure. Um, if you want this kind of help for your own work. If you want more tools in your toolbox and you're frustrated about how that progress is coming as a writer, head over to johnhelpsyourwritebetter.com. Book a free, absolutely, totally free appointment with me. I'm more than happy to help you accomplish whatever it is you're trying to write. Whenever. Um, if you are watching this on YouTube, please don't forget to like, subscribe, and click the bell for YouTube algorithmic reasons. If you're watching this on Twitch um, and you're not already a follower, consider following. If you're already a follower, consider subscribing because uh, that will not only feed me, uh, it also tells me that I should keep making things of a certain way and not another way. So everything helps me know what to give you to help you succeed because I wouldn't be John Helps You Write Better if I didn't know how to help you write better. All power to all people. Thanks so much for being here. I really, really dug this. Uh, I look forward to the next one. In fact, don't be surprised. Hint, hint, wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Don't be surprised if you see me on Monday evening the 4th, right back here in your eyes and in your ears. Or perhaps you'll get something over the weekend uh, straight to the podcast feed. John helps you write better wherever your pods are casted. 
Thank you so much for being here, guys. I'll see you next week for even more stuff. Talk to you soon. Get out of here. See you.